Welcome to Engaging History. My name is Christopher Kinsella, author of Chain of Deception. I'm a professor of history at Cuyahoga Community College in Northeast Ohio. My podcasts are not endorsed by any individual or organization. This podcast is my opinion and interpretation of the historical events that I will discuss. The purpose of the podcasts are in general to discuss American and world history in a way that engages you and explains so much of the country and the world around you. But I also discuss it in a way that is understandable and interesting. Welcome to the 48th podcast in our series on the first half of American history. In the 47th podcast, we began to continue or continued our understanding of the events as they unfolded in 1863. And I read the Gettysburg Address, hopefully again just reminding especially American listeners of the prophetic words of our 16th president. We looked at the way uh, Vicksburg, uh, Tennessee, excuse me, Vicksburg, Mississippi fell, as well as the rising prices on such staples as flour and the way Confederate soldiers were either on leave or going AWOL, up to 40% of them. The South was in some cases running out of soldiers. We also saw in phase three, the arrival of Ulysses Grant and hit the changing mindset that this commander was going to bring to the battlefield as top commander, which was the exact mindset that Abraham Lincoln was looking for. Now we saw the last set of battles that took place under Grant's command, ultimately putting William Tecumseh Sherman in charge of cutting the Confederacy in half by making that uh, that march to Atlanta, as well as eventually to the connecting to the Atlantic Ocean, he would then continue to divide the halves into another half once again, eliminating and destroying anything that could help the Confederate war cause. All of that nonstop pressure is where we pick up with in this 48th podcast, as we now see the arrival of Confederate commander Robert E. Lee face off physically with, or face to face, I should say, with Robert, uh, Robert E. Lee with Ulysses S. Grant when they met at Appomattox Courthouse, Virginia, on April 3rd, 1865. Well, April 3rd is when the Confederacy fell to the Union, but it still took six days to be able to put the final wording in the surrender papers and what the Union was going to be demanding of the Confederacy and what the Confederate requests or possible demands might be. Please note, and I just want to underscore this, Lee did Lee surrendered not because he ran out of soldiers. And that's oftentimes mythically believed. Well, Lee had no choice. He ran out of soldiers. When Lee escaped to the West, when he was outnumbered, was he was outmaneuvered for the last time by Grant, he was able to escape with his life and that of the lives of 35,000 Confederate soldiers. Lee was not soldierless, but he recognized upon arriving at Appomattox Courthouse that he was outnumbered by Grant five to one. And to our historical, according to the historical record, 
There is only one commander in all of world history who was outnumbered five to one and somehow still managed to pull off a win. And that was Alexander the Great fighting King Darius at the Battle of Guagamila in the 300s BC. Now, five to one is a formidable set of odds for one commander to hope to pull off a victory for the good of his soldiers, for the livelihood of his soldiers, Lee surrendered. Grant and Lee met, or were supposed to meet, at one o'clock in the afternoon on April 9th, 1865. And they were supposed to meet at a particular gentleman's home, a man who had a new, still relatively new home that was owned by none other than a Mr. Wilmer McLean. Does that name ring a bell to you, Wilmer McLean? You remember that name when we started the podcast on the American Civil War? Wilbur McLean, Wilmer McLean was the individual who was sitting in his kitchen when arguably one of the first shells was fired in the soon-to-be-known American Civil War and literally landed in his kitchen. And out of obvious concerns for the welfare and safety of his, himself, as well as, of course, his family, he moved out of that house and got completely away from there and bought a home in the countryside in Appomattox Courthouse, Virginia. And, of course, that would be the home that Grant's advisors had picked for the surrender papers to be presented to Robert E. Lee. So again, the same man who sold his house back in 1861 to quote unquote, get away from the war, later was told to a reporter, quote, the war started in my kitchen and ended in my living room, end quote. And how very true that was. Yet it's a name we don't often come upon across in our classes on American history. So let's look at this Confederate surrender. First off, it's no surprise that Lee could have been taken aback in a negative way when he arrived not only on time for his meeting at one o'clock, but actually was early. He was dressed impeccably. Lee literally was dressed for the nines in his full military dress. Grant, they waited for and waited. And Grant finally did arrive significantly late, more or less stumbling off of his horse, walking up the path to Lee, who refused to sit, standing tall and proud as he could muster at the top of the stairs of the porch of Wilmer McLean's house. Can you imagine what went through Lee's head when he saw Grant more or less tumble off of his horse, completely disheveled looking, Mud all the way up and down his boots and uniform. The hair going in a million directions. The, that man that Lee was looking at defeated him. On his home field, when Lee had the home field advantage, Grant, just as he had done at West Point time and time again when he was a student, prevailed every time. On paper, Grant was a C student. In, in getting the surrender papers, 
Lee could think, here is that C student. But when the chips are down and it's down to the brass tacks, Grant always knew how to pull out a victory in the end. It's not that he didn't have his losses, but he had more wins and the wins that counted to bring about a Confederate surrender. First off, while Grant may have appeared to be arriving significantly late, and yes, technically he was, there was a darn good reason for it, and one that most likely Lee would have been appreciative, if not proud of. Lee uh, Grant made darn sure that every one of his commanders sent the following order to every soldier who was still wearing a pair of Union boots that there would be no exploiting the spoils of victory. Grant made darn sure that he didn't see one American or Union officer or soldier in any way rubbing the loss of the Confederates in the mud. There would be no actions along that line, there would be no language, no words along that line. Oftentimes, I can see by the looks of my students' faces that they're surprised how adamant Grant was of this, because it sounds very different, doesn't it? And I ask you, my listeners, doesn't it, compared to a couple of podcasts ago, when I talked about the arrival of Ulysses Grant, and how he was adamant that the Confederates are the enemy. And the only way you're going to see me, Mr. President, is either with surrender papers or I'm going to be in a pine box because I'm dead. They are not our brethren. They are not fellow Americans. They are the enemy. And I will pursue them relentlessly. Is this the same Grant? Actually, it is. Because Grant showed up to get the one of the two conditions that he would go back to Washington, D.C. with. He's still alive. He still has a pulse. So the other reason he's going back to D.C. is he's got surrender papers. And because the South surrendered, reconciliation would begin immediately. Please note, though, as I ask my students, is this a fluke in the way Americans treat the losing powers? And more often than not, I don't get any volunteers of any answers. And occasionally a student will say, yeah, that probably was the one case in American history because technically it was Americans fighting Americans. But then I ask them just to listen to these couple of paragraphs that I'm going to read you. And it's a story about an American soldier who was biding his time in occupied Japan after Japan had surrendered to the United States on September 2nd, 1945. This was a few days later. What made the American occupation of Japan a success for the Japanese, as well as the Americans, was all the more remarkable for the hatred between the two countries that clearly was felt between December 7th, 1941, Pearl Harbor Day, and September 1945. But you see, Japan surrendered now. So here's what took place. This is one story, listeners, among scars. A young GI in the American Occupation Force came ashore in early September 1945. 
He was stationed in a small village in the countryside. His unit's job was to protect the police station and city hall. The next morning, he saw not one Japanese. This went on for two weeks as he was getting bored, and his unit was never allowed out of its headquarters in the police station. He happened to come across in his belongings a baseball glove, and he had a ball with him. And he began throwing the ball against the wall in the courtyard, then catching it on the rebound. One day he saw, on the other side of the wall, a Japanese teenager watching him. The Japanese youth had an old, badly battered softball and a stick for a bat. The GI invited the boy, by a sign language, to play catch. The boy did. The next day, the GI found a glove for him, and the next week, a bat, and more gloves, and some more balls. Soon, the courtyard was filled with Japanese boys and GIs, all playing catch. After a few days, they moved into the street. A few days later, they had laid out a baseball field and were actually playing the game. I know that nothing like that ever happened when Germans occupied Russian villages, or when the Red Army took over German villages, or when Japanese troops invaded China, the Philippines, and elsewhere. But ironically enough, listeners, MacArthur did not order this to be done. It just happened because that is the American way. That is the way Americans acted. This story was pulled from Dr. the late Dr. Stephen Ambrose in his book called To America on pages 236 and 237. So no, ladies and gentlemen, this was not a fluke of the way that American soldiers were treating their foreign former enemies. Grant, by and large, did not have to give the order. Nobody on the Union side was interested in any kind of revenge, so it seemed. Please note, though, that's not to say that Grant was benign or naive to the idea that clearly there could still be simmering tensions in the Confederate mindset. This is the reason why General Grant allowed the Confederates to keep their possessions, including their sidearms, but not any long-range weapons. i like to ask you to think about that a moment. Why would Grant say, yeah, you can keep your sidearm, but you can't keep your long-range weapon. If you want to pause it here, if you want to think about that, I invite you to. Otherwise, for those having to continue to listen, want to continue to listen, the Grant allowed, General Grant allowed the Confederates to keep the sidearm for self-defense purposes. But a rifle was still considered a military weapon at this time. And for the purposes of Confederates that didn't want to swallow the terms of surrender, just as Sherman was doing, remove them of the ability to wage war. So that's the reason why the long-range rifles were confiscated, but they could keep their horses, other personal possessions, and their sidearms. So this was the Confederate surrendering that we read about in the history books. And at the same time that this is going on, I also would like to take a moment 
to demonstrate for you a different side, yet a different, another side, of our 16th president of the United States, who, as we sadly know, doesn't have more than a week to live at this point. But, of course, he doesn't know this. Lincoln asked to get into his stagecoach as quickly as possible on the morning shortly after the surrender. When he got into the stagecoach, he had a few advisors with him, but he didn't need them. It looked like a diplomatic mission when, in fact, in a way it was, but in a way it wasn't. Lincoln simply got into the stagecoach, told the driver to head south to Richmond, Virginia, and take him to 1201 East Clay Street. 1201 East Clay Street in Richmond, Virginia. Ironically enough, that is the address of any takers out there? How about you on the stationary bike? No, that's not it. How about you over there in the gym listening to this? You got it. That's the address of President, or no longer President, Jefferson Davis. 1201 East Clay Street was the president's house. At 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue is the White House, and ironically enough, the color of Jefferson Davis's house was not white, ironically enough, but gray. So why would Lincoln have wanted to go to this house? To go to Jefferson Davis's house, who was long into the wind at this point. Nothing was ever written by Lincoln as to explain his thoughts. But the stagecoach arrived outside of the doors of 1201 East Clay Street. And can you imagine the look of beyond surprise as the servants and aides that once assisted Jefferson Davis to actually see the 16th president of the United States with no military protection, no personal protection anywhere around him, gets out of that stagecoach, goes up the stairs, of the porch, asks where President Jefferson Davis's offices, gets brought up there, orders everybody else to leave the office, and Lincoln closes the doors on Davis's office. Only a couple of people later wrote down what they heard inside that office, as it was Lincoln was there completely by himself. But from what was can be gleaned through the cracks in the two doors, or the space between the two doors, is that Lee, who also was long gone, Lincoln, by himself, supposedly sat in Jefferson Davis's chair. We don't know how long he sat there. But at one point, Lincoln was heard to slam something on the desk. We believe it is his hand but slammed his hand on the desk and said something to the effect of, you son of a bitch, I got you. And whether, again, he used that term, those terms in those days is highly debatable, if not doubtful. But there clearly was the sense that Lincoln had in him that he physically wanted to see the office of the president of the enemy country gone and to somehow 
Voice the words, I won. I don't share the story in any way to try to minimize Lincoln or make him sound small. If anything, I think it fleshes him out as a human being, as a politician who clearly had one of the most stressful tenures of any president of the United States. And if he felt like he just had to scream, I won, then all the more power to him. While Lincoln made his way back, the fate of the soldiers of the Confederacy were then discussed. Almost all soldiers and officers, if they quickly surrendered their long-range weapons, would be pardoned. Once again, as the Founding Fathers had envisioned, the reason for the actual officer pardoning ability or pardoning powers of the office of the president. In terms of Robert E. Lee, what about him? Lee wouldn't flee. Lee was fully willing to face whatever charges were brought against him as he returned home to his family. No, he would not return to his beloved estate in Virginia, as that, of course, became known and would become Arlington National Cemetery. He lost his house, his pride. He lost the war. He lost it, essentially, all with the sole exception of his immediate family. As a result, paperwork was drawn up for charges of treason to be brought up against Lee. And it was an amazing, unspoken, unplanned series of events that ensued over the coming years after April of 1865. The charges of treason that were to be lodged against Lee just kept getting, quote, lost in Congress, end quote. In other words, the papers would be shuffled from one house to another, from one committee to another, to a subcommittee, to another committee, etc., until eventually they simply disappeared. Lee himself wouldn't go on all that much longer as he died of a stroke on October 12, 1870, where he was buried underneath the Lee Chapel of Washington and Lee University in Lexington, Virginia. And yes, it is true that he was buried without his boots on because of the massive loss of wood and scarcity of any workable lumber, they could not find a coffin long enough for his five foot ten and a half inch body, especially due to the flooding rains. As for Jefferson Davis, <laughs> you know, those papers for the charges of treason, they didn't get lost anywhere. They eventually were served. Jefferson Davis would be jailed, however, for two years. Like Lee, he was a broken man, and when allowed to leave the prison, more or less stumbled out of there. He died at the age of 81, in the home of a widow that he more or less was living off of. But at the age of 81, he was still believing in the Confederate cause. And as a true bit of irony, or a little bit of a back at you, the first African-American elected to any United States Senate seat was none other from the state of Mississippi, from the actual seat 
that Jefferson Davis once occupied. So that again is to discuss the fate of the Confederate soldiers after the American Civil War. And before we actually get to a final overview of this, I would like us to just fast forward right now 50 years, well, 48 years from now at this time, 1865. And I want to take us to July 1st to 3rd of 1913, the 50th anniversary of Gettysburg. It was a, reu a reunion and reenactment only by war veterans. Nobody put on a uniform and acted as a Civil War Union or Confederate soldier. This was a reunion and a reenactment that was for whatever veterans survived only. And they reenacted quite a few parts of the battle. But the one I want to point out specifically was Pickett's Charge. Again, it was staged. So the older, much older in some cases, Union veterans went and took their position on the high ground behind that exact same wall that was there 50 years prior. And the Confederate veterans did their best to assemble below. After a long period of perfect stillness and silence, it almost became deafening, said one observer. Finally, a Confederate soldier made the call, charge. And the Confederate soldiers ran up the hill. But then something spectacular, oh, come on, extraordinary happened that we have no proof was ever discussed beforehand or planned. As the Confederate soldiers made their way up the hill, I have a hard time keeping my voice with this, the Union veterans jumped over the wall to charge at the Confederate vets? No. No. Because once the Union veterans and the Confederate veterans made contact, instead of bodies and bullets and blood falling to the ground, a non-uncontrollable stop, unstoppable flow of tears fell as both sides embraced each other. Remember, listeners, that this is a time when men only shake hands. The idea of a hug or an embrace or anything else is unheard of. But this just, I think, shows you the emotional toll that these veterans felt a true half century later. The last Civil War veteran was a Union soldier who died in 1956, his name, Albert Wilson. In a quick overview, was this American Civil War really fought in over 10,000 places? It really was, from Wisconsin all the way to the East Coast to west of the Mississippi River, all the way down to the Gulf of Mexico. It was a conflict that on both sides 
when you count the men, the women, and the boys that fought, numbered over three and a half million. And they paid for it, many of them, with a brutal price of their life. With 318,000 casualties on the Union side and 300,222 on the Confederate side. Over 600,000 lives in total. To put this number into perspective, that would be one out of 50 Americans killed today, or as six times as many as would have been killed in World War II, 20 times as many that would have been caught, killed, excuse me, in World War I. And that brings us to the end of the podcast where we concluded the American Civil War. This, sadly, is not to be the end of the tears that are going to be shed of such an infamous, such an awful time in all of American history. Because with the next podcast, we begin with the 16th president's view of what his second term is going to look like as he wants to put together a plan for reconstruction. And sadly, an assassin's bullet that will extinguish those plans less than a week later. Thank you for listening. Please go to my website, ceconsola.com. If you have any questions, please email me. If you like what we discussed today, please leave me a review as well. Thanks again for listening. Have a great day. Thank you.